0: As Andrew mentioned, my name is Adam and uh, my wife, Heather. We have three girls, Michaela, Josephine, and Eloise. And, you know, for those of you who, uh, for those of you who know me, um, whether you're here this morning or you're listening in on the podcast or you're going to watch the video, uh, you'll know that today is, for me, it's, it's a big day. Um, it has been, as Andrew mentioned, it's been a while. It's been seven and a half years since I had the opportunity to come and to preach uh, in the gathering. And it's not because I decided I was going to take a sabbatical or a holiday. No, but it's because there were some things in my life that disqualified me from being able to be here. And so, you know, if you're here for the first time, or you're here for the third time, or the twelfth time, or the hundredth time, and if you take nothing else in, if you hear nothing else this morning, my prayer is that you would hear this, that Jesus takes the things that are broken and he makes those things new. And he doesn't just gather up the pieces and sand off the rough edges and kind of kindergarten paper mache this thing back together, but he takes the broken things and he remakes them brand new. And I'm not here because of great effort that I exerted or grit or determination. I'm here because Jesus loves me and decided that he was going to restore me. So if nothing else, if you hear nothing else, hear this, that Jesus takes the broken and he makes them new. Here at West Village, we like to work through books of the Bible. So if you have a Bible, this morning we are gonna be in the book of Matthew. Surprise, surprise, Uh, We're going to be in chapter 12 of Matthew, so if you have one, grab it. Take a moment to flip to the right page. If you don't have one, there are these nice-looking orange ones on the table over here, and Andrew said that he would buy a round of Bibles for anyone who wants one. So go ahead and grab one. If you don't have one, you can just take it home. No big deal. They'll get more. It's all good. But if you honestly don't have one, just keep it, and uh, yeah, somebody will cover the bill, I'm sure. If you have a device and you'd rather do it on your device, of course, pull up your device. If you don't have an app, you can flip over to the App Store. So, of course, unlock your device, check your text messages, tell mom you took out the trash, check your emails real quick, and then you're going to go over to the App Store and you're going to go ahead and download a Bible app of some kind. And for us, it feels like we've been in this book of Matthew forever. Like the kids right now who are in kids, who are in kindergarten, they will have graduated high school before we finish this thing. But I wanted to take a quick second and let you know that I have, in fact, done the math. And I can let you know when this whole thing is going to wrap up. So (laughs) we started the book of Matthew on January the 31st, 2018. Today, we're in Matthew 12. We're about halfway through... And we've been at this for 80 weeks. Some of us don't remember what happened two days ago, let alone 80 weeks ago. But we've been at this for 80 weeks. If you do the math, 12 and a half chapters, 80 weeks. We're knocking out 0.156, repeating of course, chapters per week in the book of Matthew. (laughs) Yeah, so if you extrapolate all of that out, it's a 28 chapter book. It's going to take us 179 weeks to complete Matthew, or 99 after today. So if you have your calendar app out or your notebook, you can circle the date, July the 4th, 2021, that is the projected completion date of our project in the book of Matthew. Let me pray, and then we are going to jump in. Lord Jesus, you are so, so good to us. This week, as I prepared, and over the last few weeks, it was just brought to my attention again and again, how good you are, how patient you are, how kind you are, how loving you are, and how desperately you want us to know you. And so, Lord, I pray for that, that your spirit would be present, palpable among us, Lord, that you would get me right out of the way, and that you would help us to hear what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me catch us up to speed before we dig into Matthew chapter 12, And if you've been tracking with us for a little while or for a long while, you might have seen some of this theme of conflict and confrontation over the last little while in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, a number of weeks ago, Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out into the world, into the surrounding towns and preach the kingdom. And he warns them that they're going to be entering into conflict. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is confronted by John's disciples who are asking him, well, what are you doing? What does all of this mean? These miracles, these signs you're preaching, what is it that you're doing, Jesus? Who are you? Who are you supposed to be? And then last couple of weeks, we had Andrew and Andrew uh, dealing with the Pharisees and the Sabbath. And again, it's the confrontation, the conflict. The Pharisees have an agenda and they are dealing with Jesus who is not playing ball with them. And this week, we're going to hear from the crowds and see the seeds of discontent sown between the crowds and Jesus. There's all of this confusion. Who is he? What is he doing? What do these miracles mean? What does his preaching mean? And why is my expectation of the kingdom so different from the kingdom that Jesus is preaching? And who are we supposed to listen to? Jesus is tearing down all of the expectations. He is rebuilding their understanding of who God is. And he's rebuilding their understanding of who they are in light of God's presence. All of that starts way back in Matthew chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount. It's unexpected. They don't know what to make of it. And ultimately, Jesus is saying that the kingdom isn't this world of religious obedience according to the Pharisees. It's not this political dominion according to the crowds. But as we're going to see here this morning in Matthew chapter 12, the kingdom is the victory of the Father's justice. And the big question that Matthew is asking us is the same question that Jesus asks his own followers. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the invitation that Matthew is giving to us is to not listen to the Pharisees as they answer that question. Don't listen to the crowds. Don't listen to the world. But listen to the Father. So with that, let's jump in. Verse 15. should be on the screen, but if it's not, verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. And we'll pause right there. So what's the situation? Jesus, as we know, has just left the company of the Pharisees after a debate about Sabbath ethic and is now dealing with the crowds. So for those of you this morning who might be a little bit new to the Bible, to Christianity, first question is, who are these Pharisees? Some of you know this answer, but I want to go through it again. The Pharisees, of course, were a religious sect in Judaism, and they had a very strict interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, what we might call the Old Testament. But this group had a ton of sway among the people. They were popular. They were the example of what it meant to be awesome at religion in Jesus's day. They're the ones holding all of the seminars. They're the ones who are leading all of the teaching. These guys had a very clear identity in society. And so this gave them a ton of power, political influence, of course, popular sway among the people. So when Jesus comes in Matthew chapter five and preaches a brand new kingdom ethic, these folks are put on notice and they don't like what's about to go down. Jesus is now becoming very popular and it makes the Pharisees uncomfortable to say the least. It threatens the power and the sway and the dominance that they have. And so, because of that, they tried to defame Jesus. They called him a drunk. They called him a liar. They called him a sinner. They called him a demon. They called him the devil. That's my baby screaming over there, by the way, so don't worry about it. If you do have a little baby, we love little babies. You can just, you know, rock them and kiss them and love them, but it's okay if they scream. It's all good. And Jesus knew that the Pharisees wanted to kill him, and so Naturally, he withdraws. But what about the crowds? We're introduced to the crowds here. Many followed him and he healed all their sick. So who are the crowds? Well, the crowds, the crowds are us. The crowds are the regular people. They're the people flipping your burger at McDonald's, or if you want a healthier option, you're choosing A&W. These are the people who are, you know, packing your groceries. These are the people who are checking you out at the till. They're the ones helping you pick a lawnmower. These are, these are the regular people. But the crowds are also the sick. The crowds are the needy. The crowds are the addicted. The crowds are the one that Jesus calls the harassed and afflicted like sheep without a shepherd. And they love Jesus. I mean, he's doing amazing things for them. He is healing the sick. He is telling them about this great news, this great kingdom that's gonna come, but they don't line it up with their own expectations what the crowd was hoping for they were hoping for a king they were hoping for david's descendant to come in to round up all the romans and push them out into the ocean they were hoping that the kingdom of david would be restored that the nation of israel would be reborn and the golden age would resume that's what the crowds wanted but that's not what jesus was prepared to bring Look at his response. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from the Pharisees. And then it says, Many followed him, but he warned them not to tell who he was. Why did he do that? I mean, notwithstanding the fact that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, but he rejected their version of the kingdom. It wasn't about this religious oppressive dominance. The Pharisees, or hostile to Jesus because their version of the kingdom didn't line up with Jesus' preaching. And they, the Pharisees, wanted that position of power. They wanted to remain the sole arbiters of truth and faith in Israel. They were threatened by Jesus, so they hated Jesus. They thought, how can we eliminate Jesus? Why should we have to listen to God's own Son when we've got this whole thing figured out? The crowds completely misinterpret Jesus. They think a king is coming. The nation will be restored. The Romans will be booted out. Everything is going to be awesome. They're not looking for the resurrection of the heart. And as we learn later on in the book of Matthew, maybe, I don't know, a year or two from now, we are going to see that the crowds, once they figure out that Jesus isn't the king who's going to come boot out the Romans, once they figure out that that's not who he is, They turn on him. They are among the many who shout, crucify him, crucify him. But what is Jesus' kingdom? The Pharisees are looking for this legalistic, judgmental, religious, oppressive reality. And Jesus, back in Matthew 5, says, blessed are the merciful. The crowds, they want the political dominion. They want the Romans out. They want the golden age. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, and he instructs them to pray for their enemies. So we're not in the first century. We're not sloughing it out with tunics and all that stuff. But the Holy Spirit is getting after us here. The question is, what is the kingdom expectation that you have? What kingdom are you hoping is coming that isn't realized yet? What worldview are you hanging on to? That isn't at all in line with the worldview, with the kingdom, with the gospel that Jesus is preaching. Are you living out of this arrogant religious obedience? Jesus invites us to be meek and humble. Are you living out of this need to consume, to eat whatever you can, to drink whatever you can, to buy whatever you can? to get whatever you can get. Jesus invites us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you living out of some depraved sexual thirst to be with whoever you can be with whenever you want, no matter the consequences? Jesus invites us to be pure of heart. And some of us are driven to succeed. This would be true of me driven to be the best, to show everyone around us that we are the best, that we have got this thing figured out, that we are going to make the money, we've got the money. This is who I am. I'm so awesome. I just need you to see it. Jesus reminds us that the kingdom is for the poor in spirit. The Holy Spirit is asking us, what idol are we hanging on to? What worldview is sucking us dry? What kingdom are we believing in? The text says that Jesus withdrew and told the crowds not to say anything. He rejected their versions of the kingdom and in the end, they killed him for it. How militant are you? How militant am I in defending my version of events, my worldview, my kingdom? To what lengths will I go to protect what it is that I think or believe? Let His Spirit ask you. Let Him get after you. Do it right now. Do it as we take communion together in a little while. Go with somebody here and pray or get on your own after we're done here this morning. Get somewhere quiet and ask Him, what is it that I believe? What does my life reflect? What worldview am I espousing to the people around me? What am I holding on to? And as God reveals that to you, Ask him to call it out and bring you to a place where you repent in dust and ashes. And hear Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 17, it says this, and I'll pause right there. That's a shout out to Chris. If you've never met Chris before, he likes to preach an entire sermon on one word and one word alone. So, but sometimes we need to listen to the one word. So this, this is a transitionary uh, phrase or a transitionary verse here. What Matthew's doing by saying this is not asking us to consider verses 15 and 16. He's asking us to consider all of Jesus's ministry up until this point. He's about to get into a reference of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in Isaiah chapter 42, and to understand what he's trying to get across We need to have in our minds all of what Jesus has been up to over the past 12 chapters. Matthew is driving us back to this question, who do you say that I am, and is preparing to help us answer that question. We've heard from the crowds, we've heard from the Pharisees, and now Matthew is preparing our ears to hear the right voice answer that question, who do you say that I am? If you're now just switching on, this would be the time to start to really pay attention. So, verse 18. Here is my chosen, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. So, who's speaking now? It's the Father. The Father is speaking. And it's beautiful. We like it when we are spoken over like this. It's beautiful. Whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. It's good stuff. Matthew brings us here to Isaiah 42 to help us answer this question, who do you say that I am? And we turn to the Father to answer that question. And Jesus loves this description. Jesus is the sent one of the Father. He's the servant of the Father. If you flip over a couple of books to John's Gospel, you're going to see it over and over again. Jesus loves to describe himself like this. I'm the sent one of the Father. And in fact, at one point, he even says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. But there's more here. And maybe it's caught your ears. There's some familiar language that we've heard before in Matthew, probably about a year ago. And if we flip back all the way to Matthew chapter 3, you don't need to go there if you don't want to. It recounts that the Spirit of God descends on Jesus, and then a voice from heaven says, this is my, and not the word servant, but records, this is my son. This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Matthew takes us back to Jesus' baptism to make the point even stronger, that the voice of the Father is defining who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son. He is the servant, but he is the Son, the loved one of the Father. Jesus is the one who's been sent. And Jesus knows who he is because his Father sent him, because his Father knows him, because his Father wants him because his father loves him and is pleased with him. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. Let it wash over you. When was the last time you let your father in and say these things to you? I want you. I'm calling you. I love you. Some of us are here because today we need to hear just that. That the last few weeks, few months, few years have not been good. They have been hard. And we are starving for love. The worldview that we have is not delivering on the promise that we hoped it would. We are hurting. We are in anguish So I pray that you would hear the Father's voice say these things to you. I want you. I know you. I love you. And that you would hear his son say what we heard a few weeks ago, come to me, all you who are weary. Come and you'll find rest. I pray that you'd hear Jesus say as he hangs on the cross, it's finished, all of your striving, all of your effort, it's done, it's over. I've taken it. As we carry on, this section in Matthew is, as I said, taken out of Isaiah chapter 42. And it's part of the servant speeches, a series of speeches in the prophecy that Isaiah records that describe this servant who will come and to bring, who will bring the restoration of Israel about. These are important, important speeches. It's describing this chosen one who's going to come. And so Matthew draws our attention to these four verses in Matthew, these four verses out of Isaiah 42 to really help us answer that question, who do you say that I am? And he draws some parallels so that way it really sticks out in our mind what's going on. If we read verse 19, it says, He will not quarrel or cry out, nor or no one will hear his voice in the streets. Jesus isn't about to engage in fruitless debate on the streets with the Pharisees for no reason. It's drawing this parallel to all of Jesus' ministry, so that way we see that the servant spoken of in Isaiah 42 is indeed Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 20, it says, As I find my place... Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. As Jesus brings the kingdom, he doesn't do it in a way that tramples underfoot those who are already trampled. It says that he knew the crowds were harassed and afflicted. And so Jesus isn't going to crush them as he brings this kingdom to bear. Jesus is gentle. He is kind. He comforts. He heals. He helps. And all of this is connecting to this picture that God has painted for us of what the servant is supposed to look like from Isaiah 42. Matthew is taking us to this place so we see, yes, this, who do you say that I am? Jesus is the servant spoken of, prophesied about. This is the guy. That's what he's hoping that we see. Jesus knows that we need a light yoke, not a heavy, heavy burden. But whenever you see a reference like this, it's meant to do more than just give us those four verses, that small chunk. It's meant to act like this huge, blue, flashing, all bold, all caps, underlined hyperlink to the rest of that book. So Matthew references four verses out of Isaiah 42, but he's meant to connect us to all of Isaiah 42, and in fact, to the entire story in the book of Isaiah. Let me read a couple verses again from where Matthew quotes. It says, and I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And later on, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. This is where Matthew has been taking us, right here. Justice, the victory of justice. This is the big deal, right here. So what is justice? Justice, we could say it's restoration, and it's not there now, but if you wait till we get to communion, you're gonna see it on the far right-hand side. We sing about restoration every week, the work that Jesus has done. Justice is putting everything back in its rightful place. It's putting things in order. Justice is the peace of God. It's the rest of God. It's his perfect kingdom coming and being the only kingdom on the earth. It's righteousness. And that sounds good. It sounds so good. And we hear about injustice every day every day we wake up, every day we read the news, we hear about it. We hear about racism, abuse. We hear about violence and corruption and poverty. We even see injustice in our own homes, sometimes in the way that one child steals a toy from another. Just Injustice is everywhere, and we long that injustice is no longer a thing. We long and wait for the good news of justice to be realized. And Matthew brings us to this place where we see that we need justice, we want justice, but then there's that phrase, till he leads justice to victory. How will he bring about the victory of justice? Remember, this is a hyperlink. This little quote out of Isaiah 42 is meant to connect us to the entire story of Isaiah. And of course, when we talk about the definitive act to bring justice to victory, we cannot help but remember that even the average Jewish person would have thought, I wonder if I should be paying attention to Isaiah 53. So listen to a few things that it says. It says that he was despised and rejected by men. Jesus, in the end, was hated by the Pharisees. He was hated by the crowds because he didn't deliver their expectations. And in the end, even his own followers vanished, departed. Abandon him. Verse 5 But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Unlike the reed that Jesus refused to crush to bring about the kingdom, he was broken to fulfill the plan, the mission, the objective of the Father. Jesus was broken, he was torn apart. He was snuffed out for the sake of bringing this justice to victory. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't quarrel in the streets. He didn't engage in endless debate, and to bring the whole thing to fruition As he stood there in front of his accusers, innocent, he remained silent. He did not argue with them. He remained silent to carry forward the plan that the Father and he had. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus, as we've said, it's his identity. He is the sent one of the Father. He is the chosen one of the Father to go and do this great work of bringing justice to victory. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus goes to the cross because it was God's plan. It was the Father's plan. It was Jesus's plan. Jesus had compassion, if you remember, on the crowds because they were harassed. They were afflicted. And then he says, like sheep without a shepherd. We are in the same position. Jesus was sent to be what we could not be for ourselves. And so do you see it now? The answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus is the sent one of God. He is beloved of God. He is God's son. He is the hope that we have been waiting for. He is the one who has been promised. He is the bringer of restoration. He is the one who will bring justice to victory. He is the one who goes to the cross for us. That is who he is. And this is the place where Matthew longs that we will end up, that we see that all of our sin, all of our waywardness, all of our brokenness, all of our lustful, twisted, murderous, hateful thoughts are borne by him on the cross. That's what he hopes we see. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who brings about the victory of justice because he goes to the cross for us. That is what Matthew wants us to see. We can have the band come up as we Close. And how do we respond? How do we respond that this is who our God is? How do we respond? What can we do? What can we say? We can come. If you're here for the first time and this is the first time you've ever heard it, you're invited. Come. Come to Jesus. If you're here for the hundredth time, the invitation remains the same. Come. Come to the place of God's victory over sin. Come to the place of his victory over death. Come and bring your twisted worldview. Come and bring your brokenness. Come and bring your anguish, your hurt. Come and bring that marriage that is on the rocks. Come and bring the broken relationship with your children. Come bring your anger. Come bring the secret that you have been clinging for or clinging on to for years, a secret that you will not let go of, a secret that you're so worried will unravel you, come and bring that very secret to Jesus. Come and bring it to him. Bring it all to the cross. And as we read, he didn't go to the cross for some, for a little bit, for a portion of it, for most of it. Jesus bears all, all of it on the cross, all of it on the cross, so come and bring all of yourself and come to him. Whether it's now as we celebrate communion or it's later when you're at home, get on your face, put your nose in your carpet, get low before him and give him yourself. I think this is the only reasonable thing that we can do in the Christian life is to do exactly what Jesus models for us. Jesus surrenders to his father the plan that they have, so we too can surrender to Jesus our everything. We have nothing else to bring, but he invites us to come and surrender our lives to him. Surrender all of it, all the good, all the bad. Follow him and let him wash you in the victory of justice. Let him wash you in his blood. Let him set you free. Let's pray. I don't know why you love us like this, Lord. I don't, I don't know why, but I know that you do. I see the evidence of this undeniable, unbreakable love in the changed lives of people around me, people I hear about in my own life. You are so good to us. You have fought for us. You have bled for us. You have died for us. And you are raised so we may be raised as well. So as some of us mourn our sin, let we all remember how far you've come for us. And help us, Lord, not just to stay in the place of mourning our sin, but to celebrate the amazing work that you've done. We pray that our time this morning would be sweet, and Lord, that you would drill these truths and these words into our hearts, that we would be reshaped and renewed because you love us, because you chose to speak to us, because you sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. We pray, Lord, to hear you, to see you, to taste you, to know you this morning in your name. Amen.